Hello, welcome to Tales from the Albright, a podcast by the Scranton Public Library. Hello, everyone. Today we have an interview with Maxim Furick, who is a local author and will be presenting his book, Coal Region Hoodoo, on Saturday, July 22nd at 2 p.m. in the Hinkleman Room on the second floor of the library. The book itself is about various paranormal tales and strange activity in the coal region, which includes the entire state, but has a lot of focus on northeastern Pennsylvania. So I hope you enjoy this interview, and I hope you attend the program. Yeah, uh, my name is Maxim Fury. I'm originally from Berwick, Pennsylvania, that's in Columbia County, but currently I live in Makanaqua, Pennsylvania, and that's in Luzerne. Uh, looking forward to uh, to our podcast interview tonight. Yes, and thank you for being here and agreeing to be on it. Um, I do have a few questions. Absolutely. You said something that you get a lot is the fact that you started out as a more of a rock journalist, and now you're moving into more of the paranormal writing world. How did that come about? Yeah, that came about by chance, by accident. I was working on a book, you know, uh, the highest charting song in northeastern Pennsylvania happened in 1971. It was a song called, called Timothy, and it was recorded by a group called The Boys, who were from the Granton area. So Timothy was the highest ranking song. And I, as a rock journalist, I really got excited about rock and roll. I started to investigate this, and I was writing a book about it. And it was going to be a rock mythology. And again, all I was going to do was connect the 1971 song Timothy with the 1963 Shepton mining disaster. And the reason for that is in both cases, you know, the aspect of cannibalism was front and center. The song Timothy, written by Rupert Holmes, you know, was, was written to be controversial, and it was about cannibalism in a mine shaft. Uh, the Shepton mine disaster from 1963. Interesting story. There were three guys that were trapped for two weeks. They were trapped uh, 330 feet uh, below ground, and they were there for, for two weeks. And when two of the men were extricated, you know, it became a, a moment for celebration. Uh, it was an, uh, an event of human survival. It was one of the top stories, Associated Press stories of 1963. But after they had extricated the two men, a lot of the local people in Shepton and Oneida wanted to know what happened to the third miner. And then there were unfounded, horrible, horrific allegations of cannibalism. And uh, my new book, Coal Region Hoodoo, you know, Hoodoo represents both a blessing and a curse. And here we had two miners that received the blessing because they were extricated. We had one miner that received the curse, and we don't even know what happened to him. I mean, was he cannibalized or was he just, you know, covered in uh, a mountain of coal and rock and timber? And we, we don't know because we never found his body. But and then after the miners were the two miners were rescued, there were these horrible allegations. So then they received the curse. So um, you know, so that's I wrote Coal Region Hoodoo, taking a look at some of these paranormal anomalies that had happened in the coal region, specifically and also in uh, the Keystone State in Pennsylvania. So it's Pennsylvania and coal region centric. 
And I think people from northeastern Pennsylvania and the coal region really um, are, are going to be, uh, so far the response has been phenomenal. Uh, coal Region Hoodoo is the best book that I've, I've published yet. I know before I read the book, I had no idea about Shepton and I found it absolutely fascinating because it also turned into intersection between religion and possible paranormal. And it seemed like it had everything from across cultures and different aspects that you normally wouldn't put together. Yeah. uh, And as a paranormal researcher, if that's indeed what I am, what I try to do is I try, I try, and with the book Whole Region Hoodoo, I try to take uh, the paranormal and the spiritual and slot them a little bit closer to the scientific, to, to maybe try to find a scientific reason for why this had happened. And again, um, uh, that was my attempt, my mission, um, certainly with all of us paranormal researchers and authors, you know, it's a tough road because uh, the paranormal you know, the supernatural falls outside of the realm of science. Yeah. Uh, for example, we know a great example is, is gravity. You know, we watch the apple fall and we see it fall. That's the effect. And we know the cause is Newton's law of gravity. It, it, you know, that, that's, what, that's what it is. So we have that scientific realm, cause and effect. But when we see anomalies like lights in the sky, or an apparition of Pope John the 23rd, or just, you know, strange things, you know, they are uh, called supernatural or paranormal only because we have not discovered the scientific reason uh, for it. Now they may, you know, lights in the sky may have a scientific validation. There may be a scientific rationale, but it, but a lot of times at this point, we just don't know. So, um, you know, with my book, I try to you know, define certain things, but you're correct. The The book does have elements, uh, certainly of the, of the spiritual, but also the religious, because I have a chapter called Roman Catholic uh, Mysticism. And I talk about things like Pope John the 23rd's miracle. I talk about St. Teresa of Avila, the 14th century Spanish mystic. And hopefully you read that chapter because she was just such a cool individual. I mean, who would choose to become a devout Catholic in the 1400s when they were having the Protestant Reformation and the Spanish Inquisition? And, you know, they, they were hunting down Catholics. I mean, Catholics were, were, you know, really had a bad name back then. So, you know, but um, St. Teresa was, was, a, was a zealot. She was a disciple. She claimed that she was actually uh, married to Jesus Christ. And she was well uh, read and well, she was uh, very prolific as a writer. But the reason that St. Teresa of Avila is in Coal Region Hoodoo is because she t- said that through prayer and meditation, we can reach states of ecstasy and rapture and flight of the soul. And the miners in Shepton experience that flight of the soul uh, as an out-of-body experience. They came out of that shaft and they were able to look down and see thousands of people trying to rescue them. The rescue team, the Salvation Army, the National Guard, the gawkers, the paparazzi, you name it. I mean, there were thousands of people there waiting for something to happen for those two weeks. And for people that never heard of Shepton, it was a major international story. There were journalists from Germany, the UK, and Japan. Uh, they watched this thing unfold. 
And then after they were extricated, the uh, Associated Press had exclusive rights to the story by the miners. And so for the whole year, they would interview a felon and thrown and ask them questions about paranormal aspects down in the pit. So they, you know, this isn't made up. This isn't just conjured up. This is like uh, reality, you know, that was validated so many times over. So it's more, it's uh, paranormal aspects that have been uh, embraced by the scientific community and vetted by the scientific community. So Shepton, I claim, is one of the most uh, bizarre mining uh, incidents that we've ever seen. Certainly, we haven't lost as many lives as, say, Knox and some of the other mine disasters. But Shepton is important in the annals of the paranormal because of the aspects of out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, and afterlife experiences. So that happened, and uh, and that was in my first book, uh, The Shepton Mythology. And of course, Coleridge and Hoodoo is more or less a follow-up. You know, I mean, I found a demographic, I found a wonderful, uh, embracing uh, and welcoming demographic that liked what I researched and what I, what I wrote. And so Coleridge and Hoodoo is following in that, in that wake. I feel like there's so many things that go into the story from the synopsis that's given in Coleridge and Hoodoo that there's so many different aspects and how their stories continued even up until their deaths where nothing ever really changed, which is one of the more validating things that can happen because so often stories completely change and things get all over the place, but theirs seemed pretty consistent from how you have it laid out in the book. I think one thing that did change was uh, Henry Throne. He was the younger guy. He was 28 years old when he was trapped. Uh, mm -hmm. Dave Fallon was 58. So you had this symbiotic relationship, this symbiosis, you know, the older guy, the younger guy, and that helped them to survive. Uh, uh, that helped uh, Fallon, the older gentleman, to keep Throne grounded. So he didn't go insane, didn't go berserk. And because uh, he was young, he was green, he was inexperienced. I mean, he uh, he was just new at mining. Uh, uh, Davy Fallon had been a miner since he was something like 13 years old. You know, he was picking coal and working around the minefields. But um, uh, so when when Throne was finally rescued, he uh, he was more of an uh, atheist and uh, he found religion. He when he was rescued, one of the things he did was he co-founded a non-denominational uh, church in, in Hazleton, in the Hazleton area, stopped his drinking for a while and sort of like turned his life around. And uh, uh, Davey Fallon, the older guy, he drove a school bus and uh, never went back into the mines, but he, he had a strong faith. He was Roman Catholic and he believed that his faith got him through. And he said, you know, if you don't believe in God, something like the Shepton disaster will go and, uh, you know, give you that, that belief, give you that faith, you know, because uh, it was just such a uh, traumatic thing that they endured. I mean, imagine, uh, and I tried to write this in, in psychological terms, but imagine crawling on your hands and knees on shards of coal, just being bloodied and, you know, feeling the sting of the coal and the rock and sucking in the coal dust and the, and the dirt and not having any, anything to eat or drink. All they had to drink was sulfur water 
in pitch darkness and perhaps the worst thing, having no uh, hope of being extricated, no hope at all. So just to be in that state of helplessness and hopelessness and all of that. I mean, I can't imagine a uh, worse scenario. You know, and again, they, I'm sure that they experienced uh, PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. But, uh, and then the mine caves in were called rushes. So every now and then things would be constant and stable. Then every now and then there would be another rush and the, the mine would collapse again and the configuration of the mine would change. They believe that the, where they were was maybe the area was, was maybe as big as a football field. Some of the area they had to crawl on hands and knees because it was so low. Other areas they could stand and walk. But there has been various descriptions of, you know, their, uh, the tomb where they were trapped. But it was, it was large, but it kept on shifting and changing. And uh, yes, it had to be horrific. Uh, in, my, in the Shepton mythology, I have a, a chapter called Extrication. And what I wanted to do, my goal was to make this chapter the most horrific chapter I could do. It was like a horror movie. And Extrication was when they actually pulled them through the borehole when they were being rescued. And it had to be claustrophobic, horrific. Uh, Hank Throne did not do well at all when they pulled him up there. And... Uh, Davy Fallon did a little bit better, but um, actually with the help of a little bit of whiskey and, uh, you know, he got, he got a buzz on, he was drunk and uh, Dave Fallon was singing, uh, she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes, when they pulled him up. And uh, so that was that, but uh, amazing story. Somebody really needs to go and do a uh, documentary on the Shepton mythology and Cole Region Hoodoo revisits the Shepton mythology in, in so many uh, deeper ways and more profound ways. But uh, again, uh, what they experienced was of a paranormal nature. And then, of course, the image of Pope John the 23rd. And I, you probably read that in the court, uh, correct? Yeah. yeah. And uh, if you recall, Pope John the 23rd had died in June of 1963. Shepton took place in August of 63. So Pope John the 23rd had died when Shepton occurred. So this was what Elizabeth, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was one of the uh, foremost 20th century profound thinkers, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross believed that Shepton represented an example of life after death. And she was referring to Pope John the 23rd. Mm -hmm. uh, he had performed three miracles, three purported miracles. Uh, all three miracles happened after he had died. Uh, I talked to a Roman Catholic nun. I said, sister, did you know that all three of uh, Pope John's uh, miracles happened after he died? And she goes, well, of course. And I said, what do you mean, of course? She goes, well, he died and went to heaven where he got his power and came back down to earth and did those miracles. And for those of your listeners that follow things like this. I mean, when we talk about miracles, you know, it's not that Pope John the 23rd performed this miracle. I mean, the miracle was performed by God, God working through him, but he was what they would call a Nazarene. And Pope 23rd was chosen because of his piety of works, because uh, people would look at Pope John the 23rd and said, and say, here is a human being who is holy. And that's 
why he was chosen. And uh, so that's the, uh, you know, the uh, Roman Catholic, I suppose, doctrine or the mythology. Pope John XXIII was canonized in 2014. Vatican scholars attributed Chetan as one of his miracles. And as a matter of fact, Father Joseph Mary, the chaplain for EWTN, Eternal Word Television Network, the Catholic multimedia conglomerate down there in uh, Alabama, uh, Father Joseph Mary said, yes, Shepton is one of the miracles that Pope John XXIII performed. So, so yeah, so I have a little bit of the uh, spiritual in uh, both Shepton and Co-Region Hoodoo. And then to kind of go with a different route, I felt like a large trend throughout the book was the relationship between works of media with movies and television shows and how that influences how people approach the supernatural and darker aspects of society. How did that come about in the book? Okay, well, I'm a big fan of popular culture. You know, I mean, as a baby boomer, in the beginning of my book, and let me see if I could just maybe find that. Um, yeah, okay, so if I may, I'd like to just read uh, the first two uh, paragraphs. Uh, as an introduction, please consider that I've been preparing to write this book, Co-Region Hoodoo, for most of my life. As a member of the idealistic baby boomer generation, I have received the equivalent of a doctorate of education degree in the paranormal sciences. My coursework consisted of some of the best television ever created, The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, and Thriller, supplemented with a heavy dose of sci-fi and horror that included the classic masterpieces, The Thing from Another World, The Day the Earth Stood Still, War of the Worlds, Them, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Abominable Snowman, The Blob, and The Time Machine. So I contend that myself and my baby boomer peers were pretty much steeped in the science fiction and the paranormal whether it's ghosts, goblins, vampires, aliens, whatever. I mean, we had a full dose of that as kids growing up. So, you know, I mean, that became part of my resume. And then in Co-Region Hoodoo, I talk about art begatting life. And I start off the book with Night of the Living Dead, which is uh, was shot in Evans City, Pennsylvania. That's in Butler County, just north of Pittsburgh. Uh, I talk about the blob. It, uh, it was there was a uh, factual thing that happened. Some meteorite, something came down with this gooey, globby thing. Police officers investigated it, and movie producers from Philadelphia wrote the blob. That was back in the fifties. You know, it launched the career of Steve McQueen. And then the third one was the Philadelphia experiment, and this happened back in 1943. And by the way, 2023 is the 80-year anniversary of the Philadelphia Experiment. And this is the mythology where the USS Eldridge was teleported from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Norfolk and back, and that men were infused into the bulkheads and people died and just crazy things happened. Um, they were performing a degaussing operation. And what that was, was a way to demagnetize ships so that they wouldn't be sensitive to these German under uh, underwater bombs. Uh, the Allied ships would go over these bombs and the 
uh, magnetic signature would set off the bomb. So by degaussing the ship, i.e. wrapping thick coils around the ship and then juicing it with electricity, that would uh, nullify that, uh, that magnetic thick current and they would be invisible to these bombs. So allegedly, as the uh, mythology goes, uh, the Philadelphia experiment, they were experimenting with this larger amounts of, of electricity than they normally would use and uh, the ship became uh, teleported. I met a guy named Fred Tracy, it's in my book, but he was from Derry, New Hampshire, and I went up there to interview him, and Fred claimed that uh, Admiral Forrestal had read uh, him and his shipmates, he was aboard a, a ship called the Antietam, had read his shipmates this document claiming that the, the Eldridge, the Philadelphia experiment actually did happen, and also Fred Tracy claimed that a similar degaussing procedure happened with him on his ship, the Antietam. So Fred is in my book. And there were some other people like William Moore, uh, Stanton Friedman, uh, the, gov the, uh, the uh, Defense Department. I mean, I contacted all these people to get intel about this. So one thing I'm proud of with Co-Region Hoodoo is that there's over 400 references to books, magazines, and personal interviews. The book is well documented. And when I talk about things, you know, it's not my opinion, but, you know, there's uh, an opinion that's been sort of validated by a whole lot of other people. But um, the popular culture and the, and the motion pictures, the other one, I start the book off with Night of the Living Dead. And uh, we went up to Evans City. We uh, uh, Mayor uh, Dean Zinkon, from, he gave us, my wife and I, a tour of the cemetery. He offered to marry us at the, at the uh, uh, chapel there. So it was really kind of cool. But Night of the Living Dead came out in 1968. And I argue in my book that it was not a zombie movie, ostensibly. It was a sociological take on what was happening back in 1968 and what was happening in 68 were just a whole bunch of horrific uh, elements, uh, incidents. For example, North Korea captured the American Pueblo uh, a ship. Uh, the Tet Offensive. General Westmoreland said that every single province in South Vietnam was secure. They had the Tet Offensive. Every single province in South Vietnam was overrun by the VC, the Viet Cong. Robert Kennedy Jr. was assassinated. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. We had the Easter uh, Sunday riots where over a hundred cities were torched, were burned, uh, predominantly by African-Americans who were just outraged and just uh, that their leader, Martin Luther King, would be assassinated. So, so many horrible things. The Chicago Convention uh, that pitted protesters against the National Guard. So 1968, was a, a year that was pulling America apart at the fabric. You know, if you think that 2023 is bad or if 2021 or even 2020, take a look at what's happening in 1968. It was a lot worse and the Republicans stood, we endured. So I think if anything, my book uh, takes a look at that. It takes a sociological take at what was happening in 68. I think it gives us room to breathe and, uh, you know, and reason to be optimistic, because even even with the post 
COVID days and the uh, disparity between political parties and the lack of discourse. I mean, the lack of moderate voices. I mean, it's just horrible what's happening out there. But, uh, but um, I still think that 2023 for all, for all the challenges it holds is a lot calmer than what we experienced in 1968. And, and I was there. I mean, I was, uh, you know, sort of a kid when, when that was happening. So, so my book takes a look at those three motion pictures, you know, art imitating life, you know, Night of the Living Dead, The Blob, and The Philadelphia Experiment. And again, we need to be proud of this as Pennsylvanians, as members of the, you know, of the coal region. You know, this is our story, our stuff. I, you know, I would have thought that more paranormal researchers would have stepped forward and written books about our coal region. And that really hasn't happened. You know, we've had books that were piecemeal, like, for example, The Haunted was about the Shemuro haunting. And that's in my book. And actually, I was friends with Ed and Lorraine Warren. They were the Roman Catholic demonologist that investigated the Shemuro haunting, as well as Amityville. And they co-wrote the book, The Haunted, along with Robert Curran, who wrote for the Scrantonian Tribune, I believe it was. I believe that's now defunct. But Robert Curran wrote for, for your newspaper. And uh, But Ed and Lorraine Warren, if you've ever seen The Conjuring or Conjuring 2 or Annabelle and Annabelle Comes Home, Ed and Lorraine Warren kicked off this uh, franchise with The Conjuring seven motion pictures. Uh, with an international take of $2 billion. The Conjuring franchise is the second most successful horror franchise in the world after what? For 10 points. What do you think the other? Was it The Exorcist? No, um, actually it was, it's a series of uh, motion pictures, so like a whole, a collection, but uh, it was Godzilla. Oh, oh, yeah. The Godzilla (laughs) franchise you know, has made more money, you know, globally, you know, over the years than has uh, the Conjuring franchise. But the Conjuring, I mean, $2 billion, I mean, you know, that's nothing to, you know, to shake a stick at, you know, <laughs> that's pretty good. I wanted to say this, I met Ed and Lorraine in 1988. They were embarking on a 15 day, a 15 city tour to promote The Haunted. That was the book that they wrote with Robert Curran. And that's about the haunting and the Shmuro haunting in West Pittston, Pennsylvania. And I have a real big chapter about uh, the Shmuro haunting and uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren. But I met them there in Jim Thorpe. That's where they started off their tour. And they gave a presentation. I took these wonderful pictures of them. I mean, they were great. And uh, the um, I'm trying to think who it was. Uh, I want to think it was one of the, the Travels Channel paranormal shows, they contacted me to use one of my pictures of Ed and Lorraine Warren, because I oh, really wow. saw those on the internet. Yeah, it was really kind of cool. But um, anyway, I kept in touch with Ed and Lorraine. They lived in Connecticut, and I would call them up when I was doing research on the Shmuro haunting. And uh, Lorraine had a pet rooster, so you could hear the rooster in the background in her house. And they were lovely people, but they believed in, they were Roman Catholics. They believed in a spirit world. They believed that demons exist. They believed that evil exists. And Ed would talk to me. He told me how when he would go into a house that was possessed, he would invoke the spirit of Jesus Christ, of St. Michael the Archangel, and of Padre Peel to do demonic battle 
with these demons. So that's what he would do. And, uh, you know, we believe that the Schmurl house in West Pittston was, uh, was possessed by demons. Uh, there were horrible things that happened. They would hear grunting sounds. They would smell things. There would be profanity scrawled on the mirrors. Jack Schmurl claimed that he was raped by a female demon, a succubus. And what happened was Bishop James Timlin was not able to find a exorcist, a local exorcist, capable of purging the Schmurl house of a demon. So he had to call and he got uh, Father uh, Treebolt from St. Bonaventure University, right up in New York, real close to the Pennsylvania border. So Father Treebolt, he taught a course in religion and uh, the paranormal at St. Bonaventure. He came down to the Schmurl haunting and it took four attempts for him to go and uh, chase to cleanse the uh, uh, the demon the thing. Let me just read one other short excerpt. Father Trebo came down to the Schmurl haunting and he successfully was able to purge the house of demons. But prior to that, there was a house in, uh, in New York and uh, they tried to go and purge the house and they couldn't. And uh, Father Trebolt said this, he said, some ground is just bad. No one knows why. So just leave as soon as you can and take only your things with you. Don't discuss your plans inside the house. This place is just a hole to hell. So he just left that house, that house that was possessed by demons. I don't know what happened with it, but he wasn't able to do anything with that. With the Schmurl haunting, the Catholic Church was behind figuring this out. They were behind resolving this 100%. They sent priests there to spend the night there to see if they could hear anything. Uh, they sent in their exorcist. And every diocese has an, an, uh, an exorcist, somebody who's trained in this medieval uh, practice, exorcism. Uh, but they couldn't find somebody who was capable enough. Maybe the demons were too strong. I don't know. Maybe uh, With Father Treble, it took four times. Uh, he's in my book, and, you know, it's that, you know, that not that I intentionally wanted to go and bring religion or spirituality into it, but spirituality is part of this paranormal, supernatural thing. It's out there. You know, it hangs in that same ether and that same mist. So, you know, I mean, whether, you know, I mean, call it what you will. I've done several presentations called Roman Catholic mysticism. You know, to, I've spoken to Roman Catholics and talked about apparitions and miracles and Pope John the 23rd and St. Teresa of Avila. And uh, I enjoy doing it. I do it respectfully. You know, I, uh, I, I have a great fascination and affinity for this uh, theme, the subject matter. I think more so than I do with Bigfoot and UFOs and all the others. You know, for some reason, you know, the uh, spiritual realm speaks to me. For some reason, when I research St. Teresa of Avila, like I just, I mean, what's a good word? I mean, like I just loved her, you know, I'm just like for the person that she was, you know, and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful person that called herself a wicked girl because she had human uh wants and desires you know i mean she was just a young woman she used cosmetics and jewelry and she called thought, thought she was wicked she shouldn't do that you know so and i don't know you know what else but 
One thing about St. Teresa of Avila, there's documentation. You know, she talked about the flight of the soul. There's documentation that she actually was able to levitate and that the uh, sisters, the nuns had to hold her down. There's been at least four places where I saw that documented. I say, if you're a Catholic and if you believe that, uh, you know, in the, uh, and with the uh, communion and the, uh, that you're actually consuming the body and blood of Christ, then it can't be a far stretch to believe in miracles and apparitions and St. Teresa of Avila levitating. So uh, that's my, my premise. So, yeah. so what do you think of, what do you think of all that? Yeah, it's just reframing how you approach it in terms of what you call it even whether it's miracles or a supernatural power, it seems like it's all in the same realm, just different terminology. Yeah, it, that could be true. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I'm glad that uh, we're able to have this conversation. Yeah, I think we pretty much covered everything that I had written out as questions. Was there anything else that you wanted to discuss from the book? You know, if any of your uh, Berwick area listeners are there, you know, part of the book is uh, book Coleridge and Hoodoo is pretty much Berwick centric. I talk about Nick Adams. He was the cursed rebel. He's buried at Berwick. He was uh, uh, on the ABC TV program called The Rebel. He was very successful. He is one of the actors in uh, Rebel Without a Cause. Mm -hmm. And he was friends with Elvis Presley, James Dean and Natalie Wood. Actually, Nick Adams and Natalie Wood were both Ukrainians. So uh, that was interesting. Uh, Dr. Frederick Santee, he was called one of the foremost abstract thinkers of the 20th century. And he was in Walpolapan right up the road from Berwick. He was a white witch. He was the high priest of a coven, the coven of the Kata. And uh, again, I talk all about that. And I've had practitioners of, the, of uh, Wicca reach out to me and thank me for writing that chapter. They, they thought that I was respectful of their craft. And then the other person is Richard Sharp Shaver. And I contend that Richard is the most fantastic, the most amazing character that you've ever, that you've never heard about. He was born in Berwick and he claimed that he was held captive by the evil Deros. These were these, uh, these degenerative robots, and he was held captive captive underneath uh, these caves. And uh, this was back in the 40s, but people believed him, and there were Shaver Mystery Clubs. And uh, as a matter of fact, the, the FBI investigated Richard Sharp Shaver for having conjured the UFO hysteria. And they did this before 1947, and Roswell and Kenneth uh, Arnold, who saw the nine disc in Mount Rainier. So Richard Sharp Shaver is huge in ufology, I mean, to this day, and he's from Berwick. So every chance I get to talk about Richard, I do, because I just think that he's pretty, pretty cool. So my, Bur my uh, book, Co-Region Hoodoo, uh, casts a wide net. Uh, there's a lot of things there. So if you're interested in paranormal aspects of the coal region, and I would hope that you know, people from our area would, because this, this is our story. You know, this is like Stephen King writing about Maine. Yeah. You know, I'm writing about the coal region and, you know, this is our stuff, our story. So, you know, uh, I'm hoping that uh, the people in Scranton will be interested and fascinated and, you know, and, uh, you know, come by the Albright on July the 22nd. 
We're going to be there from two to four. And I have a really nice uh, presentation that I've prepared. Uh, we'll have books available for, for, for to be autographed. And uh, so I'm hoping that I'm hoping that we're going to have a nice turnout, um, you know, in July, on July 22nd. I hope we do, too. Everything is absolutely fascinating. A lot of it relates to places that people from Scranton can easily travel to, if not exactly where we are. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and actually, you know, uh, I talk about Shepton, which is down in Skoka County. I talk about Centralia, the cursed town. I just went through Centralia today, but the Irish Catholic priest uh, was beat up by Molly Maguire's, and he put a curse on the town of Centralia. He said, at the end of the day, the only thing left standing will be St. Ignatius Church. And what happened was in the 60s, they were burning trash in Centralia, and it caught fire. That fire is still burning to this day. Since 1962, 63, it's still burning. Uh, there's maybe five people, five human beings who still reside in Centralia. Everybody else has been chased out, choked out, or bought out, but they don't live there anymore. Toxic fumes, uh, graffiti highway. Centralia had been the sixth most, most visited tourist spot in Pennsylvania until they took tons and tons of dirt and put it on top of the old uh, graffiti highway, which was the old Route 61 that started to buckle and melt because of the raging fire below. So they had to reroute 61 and put another 61 up there. So, But uh, even today when I was going past there, I had some business in Ash Ashland, I saw kids there on the mounds, you know, so you, they, they were getting citations, they're getting arrested, but there's still people coming to Centralia, so. Yes, and I feel like so many things that are discussed in the book, you do make the connections to the larger picture that makes it easily available for everyone, where they might know of the pop culture aspect, but not the story behind it. Yeah, yeah, and thank you. I've heard that from numerous people that the book sort of connects the dots, mm -hmm. and it's sort of like the uh, six degrees of separation uh, you know, so, you know, everything's connected, but uh, whether it's uh, spiritual, paranormal, scientific, I mean, it's all in that realm. You know, we're just waiting to find out, you know, we're just waiting for more scientific data. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, again, I'm very, I'm just honored and blessed that the book, you know, the book's only been out for three months. We've already been as high as number 14 on Amazon's top 100 in paranormal sciences. Yeah, I'm hoping that uh, people come out on the 22nd, and especially maybe the deniers, people that don't believe a word of this, mm -hmm. uh, people that may not, you know, I have chapters on Bigfoot and uh, UFOs, and there's a place in western Pennsylvania called Chestnut Ridge. Chestnut Ridge is a hundred mile stretch. It encompasses about four counties. It's uh, southeast of Pittsburgh and it goes down to West Virginia. But Chestnut Ridge is the area where we see the most Bigfoot sightings in Pennsylvania, and also the most Bigfoot and UFO sightings. And when I first heard that, I mean, I was just, I just couldn't believe it, but there's a high incidence of Bigfoot sightings along with UFO sightings, which to me makes me think that maybe Bigfoot is more of the paranormal than the flesh and blood, that there's something there. So I have uh, 
two chapters on Bigfoot because uh, Pennsylvania is one of the top states as far as Bigfoot sightings. And again, uh, whether you believe in Bigfoot or, or, or not, you know, the theories that, that are out there are that it's flesh and blood, it actually exists, that it's a psychological manifestation, that something that Carl Jung talked about, that we think about these things, we project these, we invent these things. And then the other one is uh, that it's interdimensional. And that's a theory that was discussed by Albert Einstein. So take your pick, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'd, lo I'd love to see a, a creature. I never have. I did see UFOs. I've seen countless si flying saucers. And that was when I was in the Navy. I was a radarman. And I saw these solid, tangible contacts faster than, than anything we have or uh, Iran or Russia or China has. So, you know, uh, we don't know what they are. We know they're UFOs. And uh, so who knows, you know. Yeah. I want I want to believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again to Maxim for agreeing to be interviewed for the podcast. If you are interested in coming to the program after listening to today's episode, feel free to visit albright.org and go to our events page and you can sign up there or call the library at 570-348-3000. Also feel free to email me at aloney at albright.org and I'll be able to sign you up. If you are interested, we look forward to seeing you there. And if not, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you have a good day. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you.